My name is Charlie LaHardy, and uh, David has taken the day off in preparation for Easter today, and so he asked me to lead us in the Word today. And uh, it's a great privilege to do that, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to do that. Now, before I get started, I thought I would let you in a little secret. It really is a secret, and so you just have to keep it among yourselves. You probably have asked yourselves, where do we get these palm branches every Palm Sunday? Well, the Saturday night before Palm Sunday, every Saturday night, Mel and Lucy put on ninja suits, and they go out into their neighborhood and climb local palm trees and cut down the branches for our kids. And usually, Andy is the lookout, and Kent is the getaway driver. So please don't repeat that, but it just shows you how, to what extent, to what great lengths they go because they love our kids. thought you would want to know that. We're going to be um, talking a little bit today about Palm Sunday, of course, and faith. And um, last week, David talked about what it means to pray boldly in faith. Today, we're going to be looking at an example of bold faith and uh, an example that ties in with Palm Sunday that led up to Palm Sunday. This series, Love Expressed, we've been talking about two things primarily. Um, how does God express his love to us? And how does God express his love through us? We're going to take a little different tack today. We're going to think about how do we express our love to God? And we're going to do that by looking at a word that appears throughout hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's the word glorify. We use the word glorify or its cousin glory in our songs, in our prayers. But what does it really mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean, what is the glory of God all about? One of the best-known passages where we... Uh, Read about that word glory and glorify. We, we read every Christmas. That's from Luke chapter 2. So let's take a look at that real quick. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. After visiting the baby Jesus, the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. You've read that passage. You've read those words. You've thought about that thing of, God appearing to the shepherds, the angels appearing to the shepherds. God's glory radiated down around the shepherds. And then the angels and the shepherds glorified God. Now the root word there in Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek primarily, is the word doxa, D-O-X-A, which means in the New Testament to express a good opinion about somebody. So we use it to, to, as a synonym for the word praise or worship or honor. It describes as the verb form of it, but it also has a noun form of it, the glory of God. And I don't really think we know exactly what the glory of God is all about, except that it's some sort of radiant magnificence that seems to accompany God wherever he goes. 
You might know the word doxa from a thing called the doxology, which some churches sing, which goes, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's the doxology. It's a song of praise. We don't use the word glory and glorify too much these days, but sometimes it's used in sports. I was reading um, an account online about a South Korean golfer, Jin Young Ko, a woman who had taken home glory for South Korea when she recently won a U.S. Women's Championship. If we use the word glorify any these days, it tends to be used ironically. Um, it can mean overhyped or exaggerated. For instance, the Rolling Stones. How many of you ever heard the Rolling Stones? Right. The Rolling Stones... Um, offered a special deal for their fans, a concert ticket for $35,000 that would give you all sorts of stones, bling and stuff, would give you primo seats to their concert, and would give you a personal face-to-face meet-and-greet with the members of the band. And one snarky reviewer called it a glorified visit to the geriatric ward. (laughs) There's some truth to that. They come out of most of their concerts now in wheelchairs and walkers. <laughs> My first car was a 1963 VW Beetle. And I was 16 at the time, and it was a cheap car, but it, it wasn't very cool. The guy across the street who had more money than me had a, a Dodge Challenger, you know, and, and I just had this Beetle. But like any self-respecting southern boy of 16, I put chrome mag wheels on it, I put big tires on it, I put a a glass pack exhaust header on it, and it roared! It was slow, it was still just a slug bug, but it sounded and it looked cool. That's glorifying. In fact, glorifying VW Beetles has a long and glorious history. People have put gull wings on them. People have passed them off as some sort of Mercedes. They've shortened them. And they've stretched them. They've even dune-buggied them, of course, you know that. They've truckified them. They've tricycled them. And they've made them stylish. And they've made them really fast, or at least faster. (laughs) They've made them a little weird. And they've even made them the heroes of a love story. But beneath it all, they're just slug bugs, aren't they? When the Bible speaks of God's glory, though. It's not exaggerating. Listen to what happened to Moses when he went up on the Mount Sinai to meet God. This is from Exodus 24. Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from the inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. From down below, it looked like the mountain was on fire because the glory of the Lord was there with Moses. If you uh, were raised in the Presbyterian church, you might be familiar with a thing called the Westminster Catechism. And the very first element of the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief aim of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Your purpose, according to 
the Presbyterians, the Reformed Church. And this is, this is biblical. Your purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we ought to figure out what the word glorify means if that's really our purpose in life. When I was a kid, I sort of had in mind that when you praise God, it's a way of getting on God's good side. I mean, because it worked for my mom. You know, when she made a batch of chocolate chip cookies, if I told her how great they were, she would inevitably give me another one. But we can't flatter our way into God's good grace. We can't sweet talk God with praise. There's even a story in the Old Testament about King Saul. Uh, He was going out to conquer some nation of some sort. And God told him before he left, he said, do not take any of the plunder, any of their livestock with you when you come back. But Saul, being Saul, ignored God's suggestion. (laughs) He took it as a suggestion, I suppose. And he did it anyway. He was clever, and I guess maybe he thought he could enrich himself, and he could also probably sweet-talk God by giving God a few choice cattle and a few choice goats and a few choice lambs. But it didn't work. And Samuel, the priest, let him have it. He said, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the fat of rams. Now, if someone gives you a gift, the proper response is to be thankful. If we're grateful to God, we are thankful for all he's done for us. We are thankful for our salvation in Christ. We are thankful in We rightfully praise him. But there's something more to glorifying God. And I think there's this theologian named Karl Barth who I think had a very interesting thing to say about it. And so I want to share with you what Barth had to say. And this is kind of the focus of what I'm talking about today. When we speak of glory, we always tend to think about exaggeration. Perhaps you're familiar with the inscription at Versailles, to all the glories of France... Man's glory is like making a big noise, like trying to show off himself greater than he is. God does not need to make any fuss about his glory. God is glorious. He simply needs to show himself as he is. He simply needs to reveal himself. God is glorious. And to glorify him, we only need to let the world see him as he really is. Which brings us to our big idea for today. Jesus Christ glorified God by revealing him to us. We glorify God when we reveal Christ to the world. Jesus Christ glorified God by revealing who he was. We glorify God when we reveal Christ to the world. It's not so much about lavishing praise on him. It's almost like we're trying to blow away the clouds that surrounded that mountain that Moses was on so that the world can see who God really is. Can we do that? And if so, how do we do that? Well, I think there's some clues about the how and the if and the why in the Palm Sunday story, which actually begins about a week and a half or two weeks before Jesus makes his triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. He received word that his friend Lazarus was very sick. And so we're going to start there. You'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, uh, or if you open up your smartphones to uh, mygrace.church and click on the message tab, you'll see the scriptures there. They'll also be up here on your screen for you this morning. But before we do that, before we actually look at the Word, let's pray together. 
Father, you are a glorious God. You are here with us today. We pray that you open our hearts and minds to your glory, to your word, and to your deep, deep love for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start reading John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. This is a very strange story. Usually when Jesus healed people, you see mobs of people gathering around him, waiting for him, and sort of, you get the impression, one after the other, they come up to him and he touches them or he says a word and he heals them. And it's an immediate thing, something that happened constantly, something that happened so much, in fact, that he sometimes had to go off to escape just to be able to rest. In one case, in the case of a centurion and maybe others, uh, the uh, centurion came to him and said, my servant is sick. And Jesus, rather than going to see the person without even meeting the person, said a word and, and, the, per- and the servant was healed. But this time, Jesus waits. And then he waits some more. And he makes this statement about this thing not ending in death, but being for the glory of God. He says, Lazarus' sickness happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory. One part of Jesus' ministry was to uh, refute the fake news, if I can use that expression, that people had believed about God. He was there to tell them who God really was. They had learned all sorts of things about God. They had invented all sorts of things about God. He was there to reveal God to the people of Israel. But at that point in Jesus' ministry, when he hears about Lazarus, well, his time is running out, as you know. He's very close to the cross. Uh, The question on everybody's mind is, is this Jesus the Messiah that God has promised us? And so Jesus begins speaking more plainly than he was before. He's ready to show his power and his authority from God more unambiguously. And God, too, knows what lies ahead for his son. God, too, has a plan to show that his son is his son, not merely a teacher, not merely a prophet, but the son of God, the Messiah, sent to save us. And so Jesus goes off to Bethany, where Lazarus has died, to heal Lazarus and to glorify God. He goes off to obey his father by doing his father's work, and thus, by doing that, he glorifies his father. So what does this say to us? We can see how Jesus glorified God. How about us? How do we glorify God? Well, this is one way. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in us. And so we glorify God when we carry on his unfinished work. Christ lives in you. You glorify God when you carry on the unfinished work of Jesus Christ. 
Paul refers to that in Colossians in his letter there. He says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And last week, in David's message, where he was talking about prayer and praying boldly, he read from John 14, 12, which says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to the Father. When Jesus rose from the grave, he delegated his authority and his work to us, to his disciples, to all of his disciples in the coming generations, all of us who have put our faith in Christ, who call ourselves Christians or his disciples, continue to do the work of Jesus. And in doing that, we reveal who God is. And in doing that, we glorify Jesus and the Father. We glorify God by living like Christ, by sharing the good news wherever we go, and by, in the name of Christ, doing the very same things that Jesus did. Okay, so... The story continues. The disciples go to Bethany and they find a community that's totally immersed in grief. Let's jump ahead to John 11:30 and see what happens. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up with him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people were standing nearby and they said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that, if you, would, that you would see the glory of God if you believe? Didn't I tell you you would see the glory of God if you believe. This is kind of weird, but I remember the very first time I read John 11:40. Um, I was 17. I had only been a Christian for a few weeks. I had never read the story of Lazarus before. In fact, I'd never really read the Bible before. And I was going through the New Testament, reading, 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 eating it up. And... But frankly, I was having some doubts. I wasn't really sure if I'd made the right decision. I wasn't really sure if I could trust God. I wasn't really sure if God was who he said he was. I was reading in a, a modern version called the J.B. Phillips New Testament. Um, and so the words were vivid. And as I was reading this story of Lazarus, I was feeling the mourners weeping and crying. I was feeling the intense pain that Jesus felt as he wept himself. I was feeling Mary and Martha's grief. And in the midst of all of that hopelessness, 
Jesus does something really bizarre. He orders them to open the grave. And of course, the people were horrified. Martha tries to talk him out of it. And then Jesus said the thing that really hit me, the thing that really stuck with me and has stuck with me all these years. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the wonder of what God can do? That's how J.B. Phillips puts it. It's a little more literal in the New Living that we saw up there on the screen. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. When I read that verse, I sort of read it as a dare from God. Test me, Jesus is saying. Put your faith in me and see what I can do. Just believe. Watch God's glory pour into your life if you'll just believe. Watch God's glory pour into this stinking grave if you'll just believe. So John 11:40 gave me confidence in God. It made me think that my God was my conception of God was too small, that God was bigger than I imagined and maybe God could do even huge big things in my own life that seemed impossible. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians 3.20. He said, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Infinitely more. Mary and Martha were in a place where there was absolutely no hope. No hope. Dead is dead. You might as well just go through their pockets and look for loose change, as a famous person said in a movie one time. But Jesus told them not to give up, not just to, not to give up on God, to trust God. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. He called him out of the grave and Lazarus came out. So what does that mean about how do we glorify God? Well, we glorify God, I think, one of the ways, when we remain faithful through good times and bad. We glorify God when we remain faithful through good times and bad. Now, I know, I know, being part of this community, what some of you have been through. I'm not naive. I myself know grief. I've prayed unanswered prayers. I have been in a place where I've been desperate for God to do a miracle, and it has not happened. But I have also seen miracles. I have also prayed prayers and seen God do things that I thought were impossible. And I don't know why some prayers go unanswered. But I believe God hears every prayer we pray. And I believe that living faithfully God, faithfully, no matter what, holding on to faith, no matter what, is the way that we show who God is. It's a way of glorifying God. When we continue to trust God, whether we're disappointed, whether we're angry, whether we have doubts, we're really saying something important about who God is. We're saying God loves us. We're saying God is good. We're saying he can be trusted when we don't understand what he's doing. And when we live that way, we glorify God. When we trust God, even when we don't understand what he's doing, when we trust God for big things, then we we say something special about God. We say, He is worthy. He is good. So we glorify God by being faithful even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Okay, so let's finish up the story of Palm Sunday. Now we're getting to the real Palm Sunday part. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. The crowd went nuts, of course, as you might imagine. They gave God glory and they ran to tell their friends. 
And when the religious leaders heard what was going on, what they had done, what Jesus had done, it was the last straw. They were afraid that if Jesus wasn't stopped, they would lose their hold on the people, they would lose their hold of power, they would maybe even incite the the wrath of the Roman government. So they decided to arrest him at that moment and kill him. They decided that was going to be their only solution to Jesus. And meanwhile, back in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus threw a party for Jesus, a celebration. People came from everywhere. I guess it was almost like Lazarus' second birthday. And so let's read in John chapter 12, verse 9, what happened next. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. And then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hail to the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. That thing there where they said, Praise God, they literally said, Hosanna, which we said this morning, which means, God save us. The crowd was glorifying God because they were convinced that they had seen the Messiah, that the Messiah had finally arrived, that God had fulfilled his promise to Israel. This morning, our children put on a a very sweet demonstration by handing out palm branches, and we waved the palm branches, and we said, Hosanna. But there was no real sweetness, I don't think, in Israel, in Jerusalem that day. Um, the crowd welcoming Jesus was encouraging him actually to lead an insurrection. They were encouraging him to become the king of Israel, the new David, and to save them, to rescue them, to reunite Israel and to, to kick out the Romans, basically. They were looking for a warrior king. And while that crowd was welcoming Jesus and praising him and shouting, Hosanna, thank you God, praise God, there was another crowd who was plotting his death. Israel was deeply divided between the loyalists and the revolutionaries in ways that seem, I think, similar to what we experience in America, though we're not going around killing people yet. That could happen too. Let's hope not. Let's pray not. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks over and over again about something called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he starts out kind of explaining what it is, describing it speaking in parables to talk about what the kingdom is like. And then he starts talking about how the kingdom of heaven is coming near, coming closer. And then toward the end of his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is here. I am bringing in the kingdom of God. And at the very end of the New Testament, in Revelation, as you know, Jesus himself comes back wearing the title King of Kings. And he ushers in God's kingdom and throws out Satan. So the Jews weren't wrong to welcome Jesus as a king, but their timing was a little off. Jesus calls himself the king of kings. Jesus is the king of kings. But right now he's the king of kind of an invisible empire, the church. Which brings me to my final point of how we glorify God. We glorify God when the church recognizes Christ as its one true king. 
Now I'm going to meddle a little bit. I'm going to talk about politics just a little bit. I'm, I've been dismayed a lot lately by the way I see Christians engaging in politics, and especially by the, the anger and the hateful comments that I see so much on social media by, by believers. American Christians, I recognize we're in a dilemma because we are actually citizens of two kingdoms. We have divided loyalties. We are American citizens. We're also kingdoms, citizens of the kingdom of God. And so, like everybody else, we're human and we get caught up in political passions. And we need to be engaged politically, actually. Our nation needs to hear the voices of Christ, the voices of God's people on all the important issues that it's facing these days. It's good, it's right for us to be engaged politically. At the same time, we have to remember that God is not a Democrat, not a Republican, not a Socialist, not a Green, not whatever, whatever, whatever. God is a monarchist. God is a king. And kings do not usually share power. Most of what passes, I think, for wisdom and justice and good policy from our political parties falls very, very far short of God's wisdom and God's justice and God's ideas about what will bring about a good society. Which means, I think, two things. Well, before we do that, I think we make a big mistake when we put our hope in political parties or political powers or presidents because they do not have the answers for what is the trouble, what's troubling our world, troubling our nation. But the church does. God does. Don't put your faith in presidents or political parties or platforms. Put your hope in Christ and in his church. Our political aims as Christians can't be about partisanship, about building up one party or destroying another. It's to be about holding our leaders accountable to govern ethically and morally, to use their powers to bring about justice and peace and safety for the powerless. And secondly, we need to conduct ourselves in our political activities in ways that bring honor to Christ because the ultimate aim of everything we do, including politics, is to share God's good news with the lost. And if by the way we engage in politics, we turn people away from Christ. We're doing something wrong. Over the summer, I read a book. It was really an excellent book called Resident Aliens, Life in the Christian Colony by Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, who are two Methodist theologians. Um, and they attempt to explain what God intended the church to be and how it has fallen short. The church is not a club. church is not an affinity group. It's not a religious version of Tinder. The church is a community of people who have been reborn in faith to a new identity. The church, you, are the living royal family of the King of Kings. You are royalty. You are the royal family of the King of Kings. The church is not where we go. It's who we are. And because Jesus is our king, the who we are should be something glorious. If we're citizens of God's kingdom, we're a glorious kingdom, glorified by God's presence and with real answers to the world's problems. This is one of the things that Howard Walsh has to say. The most interesting creative political solutions we Christians have to offer our troubled society today 
or not new laws, advice to Congress, or increased funding for social programs, although we may find ourselves supporting such national efforts. The most creative social strategy we have to offer is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. From Abraham to Moses to Joshua to David to Jesus, God was doing one consistent thing. He was revealing himself by living in relationship with a group of people, a special group of people. And he's doing the same thing today through the church. We are the people of God. We are the very peculiar, odd, strange people of God. We are odd because we are God's family, and so we are reflecting his nature. We are acting in the world as God wants us to act. And we are the best hope for this world. We, the church. Israel was the people of God living as the kingdom of God, and the church is the continuation of that very same thing. God showed himself to the world through Christ, and Christ is revealed to the world by you and me and millions of other believers. In the real sense, the church is God's invasion into the world. God has invaded the world with his kingdom. He has established a beachhead here in America. He's established a beachhead in China. He's established a beachhead in Romania and Mexico and France and Peru. Everywhere where his believers, his faithful are. And he's raising up a kingdom of people whose first allegiance is to the resurrected and living Christ. So when our political values and our political actions reflect honorably on the, the king of kings, that's one of the ways we glorify God. So let's summarize. What does Palm Sunday have to say about how we glorify God? And we glorify God when we carry on with his unfinished work. And we glorify God when he remains, we remain faithful through good times and bad to a God who is very good. And we glorify God when the church recognizes Christ as its one true king. Let's pray about those things. Let's pray together. You are glorious, Father. And we come to you and we come to this church and we, we sometimes fail to live as the people that you want us to be. We make you too small. We think of the church as some sort of a social action organization. We don't think of ourselves as people who have the living Christ living in us. And when, as a result, we shortchange you, I suppose. We don't think of ourselves as people who can bring glory to you by showing who you are to the world, by living differently. But the church, in fact, is powerful beyond our imagining. You are powerful in our lives beyond our imagining. Through us, <laughs> broken as we are, messed up as we are, you are glorified by showing yourself your power, your goodness, your kindness, 
your compassion through us. That's amazing. We do not live up to that. We fall so far short of that, Father. Forgive us for the many ways in which we have not glorified you, who we've done quite the opposite of glorifying you. We have made the world look poorly on you. We thank you for your gracious love for us, your mercy, your constant forgiveness, the way in which you throw away our sins and wash us clean with your blood day by day by day. And we thank you that as we live anew, forgiven lives in Christ, we have the opportunity to glorify you with our actions, with our thoughts, with the smallest little acts of mercy and love to the people in our lives. Lord, open our eyes to how we as a church can glorify you by bringing your glory into the world, starting with the people we meet every day, our family, our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, our co-workers, the woman who checks out our groceries at the grocery store, our barber, our doctors. Lord Jesus, let us be a people who radiate your glory in everything we do and every place we go. In Jesus' name, amen.